Good evening. How y'all doing? Doing well. Doing well. We want to continue in our look at the book of Esther. Uh, we've been going chapter by chapter, moving at a pretty good pace. We are in Esther chapter 7 tonight. So we would call your attention to Esther chapter 7. In chapter 7, Haman is hanged. Yay! <laughs> uh, uh, let, let, let's, you know. Haman's a bad guy. And uh, Haman uh, suffers uh, a fate of death because of the evil that he has done. Uh, it's important for us to recognize, as we have said every time we have approached this, that uh, there, there is a metaphorical uh, understanding to this story that's important for us to draw from it the uh, spiritual points that we want to make. Um, Esther does not contain any reference to God, to temple, to uh, synagogue, to worship, uh, other than a brief mention of fasting, which does not even include prayer. Uh, there, there is nothing directly spiritual uh, contained in Esther. Uh, so we have to look at the story, we have to recognize what's going on in the story, and we have to draw the spiritual inferences from the story, even though they are not directly listed there. Uh, so when, when, when I talk about Haman being killed, what I'm really talking about is uh, the destruction of evil uh, and the prevailing of righteousness, because that's what takes place in Esther chapter 7. There, there is an eighth chapter to Esther, but really the climax of the story is here in uh, Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dinner with Queen Esther. At this second dinner, while they were drinking wine, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what would you like? Half of my kingdom just ask, and it's yours. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it please the king, give me my life and give my people their lives. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, sold to be massacred, eliminated. If we had just been sold off into slavery, I wouldn't even have brought it up. Our troubles wouldn't have been worth bothering the king over. King Xerxes exploded. Who? Where is he? This is monstrous. An enemy, an adversary, this evil Haman, said Esther. Haman was terror-stricken before the king and queen. The king, raging, left his wine and stalked out into the palace garden. Haman stood there pleading with Queen Esther for his life. He could see that the king was finished with him and that he was doomed. 
As the king came back from the palace garden into the banquet hall, Haman was groveling at the couch on which Esther reclined. The king roared out, will he even molest the queen while I'm just around the corner? When that word left the king's mouth, all the blood drained from Haman's face. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, spoke up. Look over there. There's the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, who saved the king's life. It's right next to Haman's house, 75 feet high. The king said, hang him on it. So Haman was hanged on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai, and the king's hot anger cooled. All right, so let's talk about what has taken place to get us to this point. The task that Esther has set out to accomplish seemed to be an impossible mission when we consider the obstacles that she had to overcome. What obstacles are you speaking of? Well, let's start with this. In order to even speak to the king, Esther had to break the law. She, she, she had to come into his presence while making it seem like it was his idea for her to come into his presence. She broke the law. And the penalty for breaking the law, Esther tells us, is death. So that's one obstacle that she had to overcome. Obstacle number two. In order to make her appeal to King Xerxes, Esther has to confess that she has deceived the king. I want you to take care of that deceiver. But I want you to understand that in order for me to get you to take care of that deceiver, I had to deceive you too. You follow that? Then the third thing, Esther is attempting to convince the king to reverse an irreversible law. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the fact that once uh, Xerxes said something. We, we, we referenced the, the movie The Ten Commandments, which I told you is a terrible movie as far as the biblical record is concerned. But, but there is one good thing about the movie, and that's whenever Pharaoh said something that he wanted done, he would say, so let it be written, so let it be done. Which meant that once it was written down, it could not be reversed. Once the word was given, once the king gave the word and he gave his seal to the word, it could not be reversed. So Esther wants the king to reverse an irreversible law. Remember, Haman has already come to Xerxes in order to get Mordecai killed. He's picked the day, the hour, and now he's built the gallows upon which it's to take place. And he's already gotten Xerxes to say yes. So Esther has to get the king to reverse himself and say no to killing Mordecai and yes to killing Haman. That ain't all. Number four, Esther sets out to oppose Haman, who is at this moment 
one of the most powerful people on earth. And yet she's going to take him on. How does Esther start? How does the book of Esther start? The book of Esther starts with the king sending for Vashti to come and parade herself uh, before the king and his guests and, 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 and presumably uh, to wear nothing but her crown, to be completely nude except for her crown. And Vashti says, no, I'm not going to do that. And the cabinet, the advisors, the counselors to Xerxes convince him that he needs to banish Vashti and he needs to pass an edict that says that the women will do whatever the men say do so that men will be in charge and women will stay in their place. That's how the whole book gets started. And yet here, Esther opposes one of those counselors, one of those advisors, and at this moment, one of the most powerful men in the world. And a fifth thing to consider, five things to consider before we actually get into the verses. The fifth thing to consider is that Esther is pursuing a plan which will strike a serious blow to the king's pride. The king has already passed a law. He's already said this is what he's going to do. Esther wants the king to reverse himself. Do you know how hard it is for somebody who's made up their mind they're going to do something one way? To come back and say, that's all right. We're going to do something else. Do you know how hard it is to admit that you made a mistake? It's hard to admit that you made a mistake if you're just talking to one person. Imagine admitting that you made a mistake and you're talking to an entire nation. 127 provinces of people that have been conquered by this king and his predecessors over the last several decades. And now this king is going to stand up and say, whoops, my bad. I made a mistake. Here, here are some of the things that we can learn from Esther chapter 7. First, if we are to pursue righteousness, sometimes righteousness demands that we break unrighteous laws. When Rosa Parks sat down, and refused to give up her seat to a white man on a bus. Rosa Parks was breaking the law. Rosa Parks was committing, in the eyes of the community of Montgomery, Alabama, a crime. Now, you and I both know that she was not breaking God's law but she was breaking the law that existed in that land. And if Rosa Parks had chosen not to break the law, then the changes that took place within Montgomery would not have taken place or would have, it would have taken a much longer time for them 
to take place. That's the most immediate example I can come up with. Sometimes we have to recognize that the law is not right. And when the law is not right, we have an obligation to challenge that law. We, we say it at the, at, at the noon Bible study where we're, we're, we're discussing uh, various aspects of Lent. And, and today we were talking about uh, the love of Jesus Christ. And we were looking at uh, the passage where Jesus and Nicodemus enter into a nighttime conversation. And uh, we made mention of the fact that Nicodemus uh, was a member of two uh, important groups uh, within Judaism at that time. He was a Pharisee and he was a member of the Sanhedrin Council, which meant that Nicodemus was a part of a system. He, 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 he was not simply representing himself. He was representing a system. And it was a system that was designed to oppress. It was a system that was designed to keep people in line. It was not a system designed to uphold and affirm and promote the worship of God. But it was a, it was a system that was designed to use God as a front in order to do what the Roman Empire wanted done, which was simply to keep the peace. And one of the reasons why Nicodemus had problems with, with Jesus, understanding Jesus, he didn't, he didn't have a problem where he was uh, angry with Jesus, but he had a problem in understanding Jesus, was because Jesus would not conform to the system. And my point to them is the same point I'm making to you now with regard to Esther. Esther refused to conform to the system. Esther wanted to conform to the system. Esther said to, 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 to Mordecai, if I go before the king, I run the risk of losing my life. And Mordecai's big, bad, bold response was, perhaps you were born for a time such as this. Uh, and Esther devised a way that she could indeed go before the king and break the law, knowing that it would perhaps cost her her life. My point is this for us. If we are to be who God called us to be, then we have to have greater allegiance to our relationship with God than we do to the systems that we have established that are supposed to represent God. My relationship with Jesus ought to be greater than my relationship to a church. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked them. Uh, earlier today. Do you know that you can be a part of a church and not know Jesus? Do you know that you can be a part of a ministry and have no relationship with Jesus? Now, now I know we, we automatically think that if they're members of a church, well, then they must know Jesus. But that's a grandiose presumption. I've been in the church all my life. And I know a whole lot of folk who've been in the church who ain't got the slightest clue who Jesus is. 
How dare you say that? What, 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 what gives you the right to say that? I'm only going off what I see. If you know Jesus, then you look like him. If you know Jesus, then you act like him. If you know Jesus, then you talk like him. If you know, you know, when folks see y'all on the street and they connect y'all with folk, it's based on the fact that you look like, sound like, act like them. You must be a miller. You look like Millers. You talk like a Miller. You, you act like a Miller. You must be a Smith. I, 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 I hear Smith in you. Well, here's the question. Does anybody hear Jesus in you? Does anybody see a resemblance of Jesus in you? Esther was more concerned about her people. If Esther had merely adhered to the law, her people would have died. And so Esther decided that on the list of priorities, keeping the law was less important than saving her people, or or at least in making the effort to save her people. If we are in Christ, then lifting up Jesus ought to be more important than adherence to a system. Does that make sense to you? And and so for us, the, the main goal should not be that we are good church members. The main goal is that we have a good relationship with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes having a good relationship with Jesus means that you and the church are going to be on the outs. Amen. Y'all got mighty quiet on that. The National Baptist Convention is a system. The Louisiana Baptist State Convention is a system. The 4th District Missionary Baptist Association is a system. And and I am not suggesting that those systems are inherently bad. What I am saying is that if ever there comes a time when those systems cause you to question your walk with Jesus, Jesus ought to prevail. Jesus bucked up against a system. And, and I'm, I'm, I apologize for those who were here at noon because I'm repeating a lot of what I said earlier. Jesus bucked up against a system. Pharisees had a system. Sanhedrin had a system. Pharisees said that there were certain things that you couldn't do because it was the Sabbath. Jesus comes across a man who has a withered hand on the Sabbath. And he doesn't try to do it in, in secret. Come here, come here, come, come over here. Let's hide behind the bushes. I'm going to hear. No. Read the text. It's in Mark chapter 3. Jesus calls the man out in public, speaks out loud for everybody to hear, and asks all the righteous folk of the system, what do you think is right? I have the ability to heal this man. I have the ability to remedy 
this man's suffering. Not tomorrow, right now. And understand, his suffering is not merely physical suffering from a withered hand. His suffering is also spiritual suffering because those who suffered with leprosy were considered to be under the divine judgment of God. If I take away his leprosy, I take away the, the, the sense of divine judgment that was against him. Those who suffer with leprosy were social outcasts. They had to live in colonies off to themselves. They couldn't be with anyone within the community. They couldn't even be with their own family. I had the ability to take that away from him and allow him to return to his family and return to his community. His suffering was economic. He couldn't hold a job. The only thing he could do was sit on the side of the road and beg. Alms for the poor. Got some spare change. Cardboard sign. I'm hungry. No, they can't say we'll work because they couldn't work. I'm hungry. I have the ability to take away all of that humiliation, take away all of that economic uh, oppression and restore him to wholeness. Now you tell me, system, which is better? And the folks sat there with their arms folded. Read the text. They sat there with their arms folded. Nobody said a word. Because if they agreed with him, they too were bucking the system. But if they didn't agree with him, then they were running the risk of incurring the anger of the crowd. So Jesus said, okay, you ain't going to say nothing. I'll say it for you. And he told the man with the withered hand, Stretch forth your hand. I love this part. Here's the preacher in me. Somewhere between here and there, the leprosy was gone. Somewhere between here and there, all the withered part of the hand was cleansed. Somewhere between here and there, his hand became pure as driven snow. And the man celebrated. And the Pharisees got mad. And they gathered with each other and said, what we going to do with this fellow? You know why? Because they were more concerned about a system than they were about a relationship. Now, before you get mad with the Pharisees, ask yourself, are you more concerned with a system than you are with a relationship. Yes, sir, Brother Bruce. Yeah, That's one place where he says it's also written in Matthew chapter 16. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The point being, many of us think that because we've placed our name on a church roll, that we're following Jesus. And I believe that every Christian ought to be a part of the church, but I don't believe that everybody who's a part of the church is a Christian. If you don't look, I was talking about looking like who you come from. If you don't love like Jesus, if people can't look at you and see love like the one you profess to come from, 
Maybe it's because you don't come from him. If people can't see forgiveness in you, like they see in the one you come from, maybe it's because you don't actually belong to him. Y'all remember what it was like when y'all got ready to go out on Friday night and on Saturday night and, you, and your parents told you, remember who you come from? Don't, don't go out there and embarrass my name. Remember what your last name is. All, all, all them different things. The point they were trying to make is you belong to somebody. And if you belong to them, then folk are going to look at you and they ain't going to just think about you. They're going to think about who you came from. Which is why I've said to you many, 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 many times, the only Jesus that many people will see is the Jesus they see in you. And if you are low down, they're going to think Jesus is low down. If you are conniving, they're going to think Jesus is conniving. If you are a liar and a cheat, they're going to think Jesus is a liar and a cheat. Because the only frame of reference that they have is you. Esther was willing to break the rules, to buck the system, because what she was coming to do was more important than the system that she was a part of. Second thing I want you to see is that sometimes you have to act outside the frame of reference of what other people think is right in order to accomplish what is right. Esther had to deceive the king in order to point out the deception of Haman. Did you hear me? Second time I've said that. She had to engage in a deception in order to point out Haman's deception. Now, you, with your holier-than-thou self, would say, oh, well, there has to be another way to do that. You, 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 you can't just make up the rules as you go. Why can't you? If, if the goal is to be like Jesus, then understand being like Jesus sometimes means that there are no rules that apply. I, I, I used to hear people say, for every problem that exists, there's a scripture that speaks to it. I've been doing this for a long time. There are some problems that exist for which there is no scripture. And what you have to... Did you know that before people had Bibles, they had a relationship? And the relationship... Nothing wrong. I, I ain't talking against the Bible. For those of you who are sitting there going, grumble, grumble, grumble. I'm not talking against the Bible. But what I am saying is that relationship is more important than adherence to the Bible. Again, referencing Jesus. And again, apologizing to those who are here at noon, and, and right now, I think that's just Reverend Smith. So, so, so the rest of y'all, this is all new to y'all. Jesus and, and, and the disciples are out uh, in a field on the Sabbath, and they got hungry, and they saw grain, and they started plucking the grain 
off of the, 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 the plant, and they were eating it. And the Pharisees, why is the Pharisees always out there with them? They're always watching. Always playing. Be careful, folk who always want to watch you. I just want to hang around, that's all. Be, be, be careful, folk who always just want to hang around. But, but, but they saw them plucking the grain, and, and, and they fussed at Jesus and said, why don't you tell them to stop doing that? It's the Sabbath day. Jesus said, did you know that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? And, and, and how, how is that a reference to what I'm talking about? Sometimes the rules don't apply to right. Sometimes in order to accomplish right, you have to act outside the rules. The rule said no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had determined that plucking grain was considered to be work. And Jesus upends the whole thing by saying man was not made to simply adhere to rules. The rules are here to guide man. You've never run across something in your life where you had to overlook the rules? Let, let me ask you something. Have you ever had to rush somebody to the hospital? And, 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 and the speed limit says 35 miles an hour. They're having a heart attack. They're having a stroke. They're, 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 they're sick as a dog. And, and, and you don't know whether or not they're going to make it. And you tell them, that's right, as soon as I get through this 35 miles old. <laughs> I'm going to pick up speed. Or do you drive as fast as you can to get them to the help that they need? Now, when you do that, you are breaking the law. You know that, right? Yes. Really? See, I didn't know that. <laughs> so you forgot to put the white hanky on the antenna. And, and these days, cars ain't got no antennas. <sighs> thank you for sharing that. I, I did not know that. Th thank you for sharing that. Sometimes you can't simply say, I was only doing what the rules say, or the rules are, are, are there, and I can't break through. Sometimes you have to recognize the importance of the cause as being greater than adherence to the rules. And that's what Esther does. Esther works outside the rules in order to accomplish a greater end, which is the deliverance of her people. The third thing that I want you to see is that Esther used every bit of influence that she had to accomplish a righteous end. She held nothing back. Somebody ought to ask the question, well, what influence did she have? Come on, ask me. Thank you for asking. 
You want to know what her influence was? She was pretty. Now, I, I know some people get offended by that, you know, talking about the fact that, that she's pretty. It's the only thing that she had working for her. Understand, she's a slave. She doesn't have any freedom of, of, of mobility or, in, or any independence at all. She can't work a job. She, she's, she sits around in luxury, but she sits, she sits around in luxury that doesn't belong to her. It belongs to her husband. She owns nothing. She has no latitude. She has no real authority. So she uses the one thing that she's got. She's pretty. And we all know that men are weak. And you can say, oh, all you want to. Men, men are weak around pretty women. Pretty women can have their way around certain men. It's just that he says no less than three times, ask for what you want. Up to half my kingdom, and I will give it to you. Three times. She, she used the one thing that she had. Because she needed to use what she had in order to get him to do something other than what he intended to do. Now, here's my thing. I, I, I know we're, 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 we're laughing about Esther, but here's the thing. Everybody in here has to learn how to use what you got in order to accomplish what God has called you to do. Now... If that statement is, if you're going to actually act on that statement, you got to understand a couple of things. Number one, you got to know what you got. You can't use what you got if you don't know what it is. I, I, I worry about folk who, who spend all their lives trying to figure out what they got. You've been in, in, in Jesus for years for decades, and you don't know what you got. You have the indwelling, infilling power of the Holy Spirit. You're better than Esther. I'm looking at pretty people all around me. You're better than Esther because you got something other than pretty. Esther didn't have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit didn't mention anywhere in the book. So she used what she had. I'm here to tell you, you got something more than Esther had. You have the indwelling, infilling power of the Holy Spirit. So, first thing, in order to use what you got, you got to know what you got. Second thing, you have to not be afraid to use it. Some people got something, but they're too scared to use it. I swear, I get frustrated by people who pray to God to open doors. Open a door, God. And then when God opens the door, 
you scared to go through. You find excuses why you can't go through. Jesus comes across a, a, a fellow who's been laying by a pool waiting for the water to be stirred so that he can get in and be healed. Here's his problem. He ain't nobody to help him. And, and he's been laying there for 38 years. Jesus asks the man a simple question. Do you want to be healed? Listen to how the man answers. Lord, I've been laying here for 38 years. I ain't ask you that. I ask you, do you want to be healed? Listen to how the man answers. Lord, I've been laying here all this time, and I don't have anybody to help me into the water when, when the water is stirred. Somebody else gets in before. I didn't ask you that. I asked you, do you Sometimes a yes or no question deserves a yes or no answer. One of my favorite TV shows uh, used to be The West Wing. Y'all ever watch The West Wing? Or am I once again by my, y'all don't watch The Godfather, y'all don't watch The... There's a scene in The West Wing where uh, uh, the, 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 the White House attorney is prepping uh, the, the, the communications director for giving testimony before uh, a Senate subcommittee. And he asks her, do you know what time it is? And she looks at her watch and she says, it's 11 o'clock. And he says, I didn't ask you that. I asked you, do you know what time it is. It's a yes or no question. Sometimes we mess up because we try to answer questions and ain't nobody asking. The answer to do you know what time it is is yes or no. But answer the question that was asked. Deal with the issue that currently confronts you. Recognize how important it is that you use what you have in order to accomplish what God wants you to have. And part of our problem is that we don't know what we have. And if we do know what we have, we're scared to use it. Here's something that I've learned about some people. They might not like the position that they're in, but it's comfortable. And rather than deal with the discomfort of something new, they would prefer to stay in a miserable state because it's all that they have known. Children of Israel, for 400 years, prayed to God, get us out of Egypt. Take us back to the promised land. 400 years, four centuries, Moses comes along. And, 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 and he begins the process of forcing Pharaoh to let them go. And every time he does something and Pharaoh tries to add to their labor, they fuss at Moses. They tell Moses, who told you to come here and mess with us? Wait a minute. You've been praying to God. God called me up on a mountain. 
And God spoke to me out of a bush that burned but would not be consumed. And God said, I have heard the cries of my people. And I'm sending you to set them free. So, 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 so you're asking me, who told you to come? God, the God you've been praying to told me to come. Then once he gets them free and they start heading out, they start fussing. We ain't got nothing to eat. And then when he gives them something to eat, you know, we, we ain't got nothing to drink. And then when, 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 when they get to the promised land and he sends folk over to spy out the land, they come back and say, well, you know, it's a pretty good land. It's got some great stuff. It's flowing with milk and honey. But they some other folk over there. I don't know if we can handle them other folks. So I tell you what, we need to head on back. You're laughing, but I'm telling you, that's us. We ask God to open a door. He opens the door. We don't want to go in because we are so comfortable with being miserable. We don't like being miserable, but we're comfortable being miserable. Have you ever been laying in bed and you're in the wrong spot in the bed and, and, and you complain, this ain't a comfortable spot, and, 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 and somebody says, well, why don't you move? Well, I've been laying here all this time. That's us. Esther used what she had in order to get the king to reverse himself. Christians have to use what they have in order to accomplish God's will. And what you have is the Holy Spirit. In addition to the innate talents and gifts, because God has blessed all of us with various talents and gifts, in addition to those, what you have that matters the most is you have the indwelling, infilling presence of the Holy Spirit. You have power. That's what I was trying to talk about Sunday. Dunamis. You have power. Transforming power. Chain-breaking power at your disposal. And yet you, you, you're so mired in mediocrity that you'd rather stay mediocre than use the power that God has given you. Fourth thing, I'm almost done. I know I'm tiring y'all out. Esther takes a position of direct confrontation with the source of evil. Haman serves as, as, as the representative of evil. And, and, and in order for Esther to save her people, she has to confront evil. And she didn't confront him at first. She, 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 she bided her time. 
Remember, she had the king and Haman to dinner the day before. And, 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 and the king said, what do you want? I just want y'all to come back tomorrow night. That's all I want. You, you and I'm having such a good time tonight. Just, just come back tomorrow night. We'll do it all over again. She, she didn't confront the evil then. But now she stands up to the evil. She calls the evil what it is. Evil. And she rebukes the evil. Let me say something to you. If you're to be who God called you to be, at some point you got to stand up to evil. And you got to call evil what it is. You can't confront evil by trying to get along with evil. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that shall you also reap. Well, what, 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 what happened the first? Why, why didn't she just say it the first time? That's the second point I want to make on this point. At some point, you have to confront the evil. That's the first point. The second point is you got to know when to confront the evil. Just because you see evil and just because you recognize evil as evil doesn't mean that it's always the right time to confront the evil. Just because you know what needs to be done doesn't mean that it's always the right time to do what needs to be done. How many places in Scripture, since I'm referencing Jesus all over the place, how many places in Scripture does Jesus heal somebody and then say, don't tell nobody what I did? Keep it to yourself. Because he knew that it wasn't the right time. How many times do we see Jesus confront the Pharisees or confront the Sadducees, confront the representatives of an unjust, hypocritical system? And before they could do something about it, they turn around, where is he? He'd slipped off. He was gone. It's not enough to know what's wrong. If you really want to correct what's wrong, you have to know the right time to confront what's wrong. Now, what does that mean? That means that sometimes you got to put up with wrong until you can make wrong right. Did you hear what I just said? Sometimes the best, all this talk about keeping it 100 and, and, and I can't be fake and all this other stupid stuff that the people say. All you have done is make a bad situation worse. Let's go back to, to Rosa Parks. I mentioned Rosa Parks. You know, Rosa Parks wasn't the first person who stayed in her seat and, 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 and confronted the, the, the law that said that Negroes couldn't sit in certain seats. Others had done it before, but no movement came of it because they weren't the right person and it wasn't the right time. 
But when the right person came along and the right time came along, God moved in that situation. Which suggests that you have to have a spirit of discernment. Sometimes you just got to put up with some stuff. Be still and know that I, not you, I am God. And at the right time, I will reveal to you what it is that you should do. She confronted the evil. You can't make accommodations with evil and expect to prevail. Sometimes you have to tolerate it, but when you're ready to respond to it, you have to respond to it. And that means there ain't gonna be no treaties. There's not gonna be any consensus. You have to recognize evil for what it is. And you have to decide that you're gonna take it down. Number five, last thing I want to say to you tonight. Sometimes you have to be willing to take the risk that goes along with doing the right thing. I talked about the fact that sometimes we pray, quite often we pray for God to open a door, and when the door is open, we won't go through. One of the reasons why we often don't go through is because we don't want to take the risk. What happens if I get to the other side? What happens if I, if I take this position? Jesus tells a parable about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as he was traveling, he's jumped, he's mugged, he's beaten up by robbers. They take all his stuff, they beat him so bad that they leave him a bloody mess in the middle of the road. They leave him there to die. And Jesus says that as the man is lying there in his weakened, beaten, bloody, dying state, three folk come by. Says the first one is a priest. The second one is a priest times two. I, I, I know y'all like to say one was the preacher and one was the deacon, but that's wrong. <laughs> They're both Jewish clerics. One was a priest. The other one was so much a priest that he was from the tribe of Levi, and you go back and check your Old Testament. The Levites were the called out people of God whose sole responsibility it was to God, keep, preserve, and proclaim the word. So Jesus doesn't say the preacher and the deacon. Jesus says the priest and the super priest. <laughs> Y'all know them folk who want to be called elder <laughs> and bishop. Y'all, 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 y'all know them, right? So, 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 the first fellow that came by was, was red. 
The second guy that came by was Reverend Doctor. And here's, and, and here's what both of them did. Both of them looked at him, considered his condition, and then stepped to the other side of the street and kept right on going about their business. Man still lying there, still beaten, still bloody, still dying. And Jesus says, a third fellow came by. said, but this one was different from the other two. Whereas the other two were Jewish and were clerics, were, were part of the religious aristocracy. This fellow was Samaritan. And he wasn't a part of any priestly order at all. And yet, of the three, it was the Samaritan that stops, that bandages his wounds, that picks him up, that carries him into town, that cares for him all night long that gives money to the innkeeper where they stayed and says, you take care of him while I go on where I have to go. And if it costs you more money than I have left you, I'll pay the balance on my way back. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used that sermon, that, that parable on the night before he was assassinated. And he talked about not whether or not one was reverend and the other one was reverend doctor. He talked about the fact that there were two attitudes on display here. The attitude of, of, of the priest and the Levite was, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? Perhaps the robbers are still around. Perhaps if I, if I linger too long, I'll be a victim just like this fellow, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? He said, but when the Samaritan came through, he asked a different question. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? It's the difference in attitude. It's the difference in perspective. It's the difference between a humanist perspective and a spiritual perspective. Everybody in here is a human. That's not, that, that's not in doubt. That's not in question. Everybody in here is a human being. What I want to know is, how many of y'all are spiritual? Ain't, ain't got no doubt in my mind. Everybody in here is human. But I have to wonder. How spiritual are we? How many of us only think about how this affects us? And how many of us are willing to reverse the question and think about Esther took her life in her hands. Not once, not twice, not three times, four times. She goes before the king. She tells the king that I lied to you. That's essentially what she said to him. I lied to you. She confronts 
the king's evil henchman. And she takes the risk that the king will agree with the henchman and not agree with her. She took her life in her hands four times because like the Samaritan in Jesus's parable, for her, the question was not, if I, don't do this, if I do this, what will happen to me? The question was, if I don't do this, what will happen to my people? And she decided that it was worth the risk. And that's the point I want to leave y'all with, because I'm, I'm out of time. The point I want to leave you, because I got more to say, but you got to come back next week to get more. The point I want to leave you with is, if you're going to do what's right, acknowledge the fact that there's risk involved. If you want to do what's right and never engage risk, you tell me how you do that. Yeah. I want to know. I've been around for a good little while now. I, I, I ain't young no more. I, I've been around for a good little while. And one of the things I've learned is that if you're going to do what's right, is going to involve risk. I said to the, to the group at noon, be sure of this. If you take a stand for Jesus, two things going to happen. One, you're going to make somebody mad. And two, they're going to gather up in a huddle and talk about you. Now, the huddle could be physical out there in the parking lot. The huddle could be in a conference call because everybody got, you know, we started with party lines and then not, not, now we're back to party lines. Just as a practical thing, let me tell you something. Be careful who you talk to on a cell phone because you don't know who else is listening on the cell phone. Y'all think y'all talking to one person and y'all talking to 20 other people. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. If you're going to do what's right, know this. Somebody's going to be mad. And they're going to talk about you. It involves risk. But the rightness of your cause, harder yet, let me end with a hymn. Harder yet may be the fight. Right oft gives way to might. Wickedness a while may reign, and Satan's forces may seem to gain. But there is a God who rules above with a hand of power and a heart of love. And if I'm right, God will fight my battle, and I shall be free. Someday. I don't know how long it'll be. I don't know what the future holds for me. But this, I know if Jesus leads me, I shall be free someday. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If there's one, we invite you to come and surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Just as I am.
am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.